the psalm, the 78th psalm, is classified as a history psalm in the book of Psalms. The psalm is addressed to Ephraim. And it's the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And many commentaries believe that the term was used to describe the entire nation of Israel in the northern kingdom. And they were the leaders at that time. That's why they got picked on, because what's said about them here is not complimentary. They represent the, the errant attitudes that were an undercutting and an undercurrent amongst the tribes of Israel, even in the days of David, when Asaph lived. We're told that Asaph was a man who was skilled in music, and he would probably lead worship in the house of God during the days of King David. Nobody doubts that. He, that probably was. And he was known as a seer, or what we call in today's world a prophet. If you do a search, you will find that Asaph wrote 12 of the Psalms. And the Psalm that we're going to read today is the second longest Psalm in all of Scripture, right behind the 118th Psalm. So I'm not going to read you the whole thing. I'm going to only read you parts of it. So, 78th Psalm. My people hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter things from of old. Things we have heard and known. Things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from our descendants. We will tell the next generation praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. His power, his wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which commanded our ancestors to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they will turn and tell their children. Then they will put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but keep his commandments They would not be like their ancestors, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. That's tough reading. The 78th Psalm in God's holy word teaches us how to turn the tide of evil in our nation. What is the key of making our nation moral? Let's just word it that way. Now, back in the 1800s, there was a famous preacher by the name of Peter Cartwright. Cartwright was known as a very bold, uncompromising preacher. And one day, the President of the United States, Andrew Jackson, was going to be in his church. But the elders were concerned. They warned Cartwright, you need to be careful when you preach. We don't want you to offend the President of the United States. Now, they were very satisfied and very convinced 
that they had convinced him, let's word it that way, not to embarrass the president. And the elders retired back to the back of the sanctuary where they all like to stand, right? And Cartwright got up to speak. And the first words out of his mouth were these. I understand that President Andrew Jackson is here with us this morning. And I have been requested to be very guarded in my remarks. Let me say this. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he does not repent of his sin. That's what he said. Now, the entire congregation was appalled. The elders in the back of the room were angry. And they thought to themselves, how could our preacher publicly offend the President of the United States of America? After the service, Andrew Jackson walked and met Cartwright face to face. And Jackson had been a general in the U.S. Army and a hero of the Battle of New Orleans. And he was not a man you messed with. He was actually kind of rude and crude and rough and tough. Jackson sternly looked at the preacher in the eye and said... Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could conquer the world. That, that, no, that, they all, that, that was his words. It's immortalized in print. That is the message of God. Death is real. Sin is real. Evil is real. Pain is real. God is real. Salvation is real. Forgiveness is real. And healing is real. That's the message. Reverend John Wesley once said about the same thing. He said, give me 100 preachers who believe that who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and they will shake the gates of hell. In this morning's text, we read the words of a man called Asaph. Asaph confronted Israel with the reality of sin and the importance of desiring nothing but God. I would strongly urge you to read the whole Psalm this week, if you get a chance. It's it's a rough read. And he essentially told Israel, you need to pay attention. Because if you don't, people are going to go to hell. Asap feared nothing but sin and desired nothing but God. And here in the 78th Psalm, Asap used the name of the tribe of Ephraim to represent the attitudes of the entire nation when he declared the Ephraimite army with bow turned their back on pardon me turned back on the day of battle that's what it says turned back on the day of battle they did not keep God's covenant but refused to walk according to his law they forgot his works and wonders that he had shown them. Now that's Psalm 78, 9 through 11. Um, you can read that. I didn't read it to you earlier. He said that they turned their back on the day of battle. 
But I don't think of it as referring to a mortal battle with physical enemy. I think he's talking about a moral battle, moral conflict with spiritual consequences. He says Israel hadn't kept God's covenant. They refused to walk according to the law. They had forgotten what God had done for them. God had armed them for a spiritual battle and they just walked away. You see the parallels in our world today? They surrendered. They threw down their weapons of righteousness and gave up to the enemy. In this psalm, Asaph told a a number of things that the Israelites had grumbled and complained against God. And if you read God's holy word, there's a number of times they grumbled and complained. That's what they're known for. They're grumblers and complainers. Times when they made sacrifice to pagan idols, actually. Times when they've done evil and immoral things. But of course, God didn't, God didn't or did care. What do you think? He did care. And the people suffered because of their disobedience. He took away their blessing. You know, I've heard a number of preachers over the years, oh, I love television preachers, right? They don't, you know, they're just up there, right? And, and they rail against the immorality and sin of our nation. And they beat, okay, and the problem is, they're beating up on their audience. They're saying, the ones who are watching, the ones who are seeing, they're not the ones who are in trouble. Don't beat up on, you know, the ones who are here to learn. But it's something they're doing, right? They tell them it's because they stood back and let it happen. They actually berate their audience, if you've been watching lately, and saying, you need to change your lives. They're the ones in the pews. They're the ones in the seats. They're not the ones. Normally. (sighs) But we're in a different time. There, there is a time for that kind of thing. Don't get me wrong. But ASAP doesn't seem to be focusing on the audience's sins as much as he was telling the audience how they could turn the tide. How could they could defeat evil? How could they fix what was broken in their nation? And how could we fix what's broken in ours? War was raging Throughout the centuries. We're, this war we're in has been throughout the centuries. It's just a simple fact. The outcome of the war is already decided and declared and published in the book of Revelation. The outcome's done. We're just in the battles. The battles still rage on. And we sitting here today look around the battles are raging on around us. And no, we're, and let's be honest, we're not winning a majority of the battles right now. ASAP reviewed the history of his people, and then he saw a sad, in that, this word, I'm gonna be polite, we have kids, they saw a sad record of forgetfulness, faithfulness, or less, foolishness, and a failure that's 
in failure. Barbie, does that sound like our nation right now, our world right now? And he sought to declare what it all meant. And actually, he does in this thing. And he says, these things were written for the prophet of believers today. Let me take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to start at verse 11. It's a theme throughout scripture. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. You might want to write that in your notes to read. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 11. Everything you read in God's holy word is to teach you, to show you, to, to, to empower you. So we better heed what Asaph says. He says, give an ear, all my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. That's Psalm 78, verse 1. Pay attention, and I will tell you how to prepare for the battle. Basically is what he's saying. And how were they going to prepare? Asaph said that God appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. Hang on, let me see if I can stop a little bit of this crackling. Worst comes to worst. Okay, let's see if the crackling stopped. If it did, I get a brownie point. I've, I've fixed things like that before. He had commanded that they teach it to the children. That the next generation might know them. The laws. The children yet unborn will arise and you'll tell them to the, and they'll tell it to their children. So they should set their hope on God and not forget. And they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. God's word says that. A generation whose heart was not steadfast whose spirit was not faithful to God. Now that is Psalm 78, verses 5 through 8. God called them stubborn and rebellious. And and if he called them that, I'm sure they were worse. Sounds like what we're going through now. A generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Oh, That's tough. How do you turn a tide against evil in this world? Will you teach your children about God? Years ago, Ronald Reagan, I love picking on him, right? You know, 
he just smiles a lot, right? He makes a good picture, but he had common sense. And he, he made this powerful observation. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. And he, he said, we didn't pass freedom to our children by a bloodstream. It must be fought for and protected and handed on to them to do the same. Or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like to live in the United States of America where a man was free. In other words, the thing that was important, whether it's freedom or faith, is never more than one generation away from extinction. Why do you think we have kids help us? Now, they like to help, and two, they're learning. Your children, your grandchildren, your nephews, your nieces won't pick up the faith by osmosis. It's not something that will flow into their bloodstreams. It's taught, not caught. And that's what ASAP was saying. Speak to the children about God. Well, how do we do that? Well, we learn from the Israelites' mistakes. That's why it was put in there, so we could learn what they did wrong. Mistakes that we don't want to make. First, they didn't take their faith seriously. Asaph wrote, writes, Israel flattered him, that's God, with their mouths, and they lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast towards him. They were not faithful to the covenant. You can find those words of Asaph in Psalms 78, verses 36 and 37, so you can check it out. They weren't faithful. They were pretending to be righteous, but they weren't serious. There's a word for that called hypocrisy. It's hard to tell kids about God if you're not serious about God yourself. It's We're hypocrites about our faith if we do that. It's, you know, we want, it's not, we just don't want it leaking through. We want to tell them about it. Someone once said, children have never really been good at listening to their elders. At least you think that'd get an amen, but it's true. But they've never failed to imitate them. Now, just so you know, that was the person who wrote that was the author James Baldwin. He wrote many good things. That's his name. He came up with the idea. I mean, I'm giving him credit. I like it. Children have never been very good at listening to their elders, but they've never failed to intimidate them. It's in his book, so I'm giving him credit. (sighs) So the question is, what does hypocrisy look like? Some of the most obvious is when a Christian gets drunk or uses foul language or tells dirty jokes or when they mistreat people down at the store or the waitress or I don't know, pick one. The gas station attendant, they don't have those anymore. You ever get tired of your hands smelling like gas? Yeah, I I miss those guys. Some of the less obvious forms of hypocrisy is when we 
When kids watch us skip church because we see it as optional. Or complain about decisions the deacons and churches have made. Sometimes you just come up with something on a spur of the moment, just for fun. Try something different. And sometimes it fails. Other times it works. Or when they hear us complaining about things others have done in church. Or Christians like to talk about each other. Or how God says we need to fix the issues. And we have each other when we just let them fester. We're supposed to work it out between each other. Why would I want to go to church when people are doing that in it? If you're not happy with your God and His church, and you're not committed with your faith, the kids will say, why do I want to do that? You don't push kids away. You want to entice them. You want to excite them. You want to challenge them. You want to draw them to Jesus with your passion. And let's face it, candy downstairs helps too. Side note here, side note, if you've got leftover candy and you don't want to get fat eating it all, just bring it to church and put it in Brian's classroom and he'll feed it to the kids and send all the kids back to you full of sugar. No, I, that's what I did with mine. Hey, at the price of candy, I'm not throwing it away and I'm not, you eat one piece and you gain five pounds. But that's a side note here. I gotta get back to the sermon. We're gonna not get through this. Let's face it. If it is not important to you, it won't be important to them. Another one of the mistakes that ancient Israel did was they didn't think their God could do anything. Now, if you have a King James Bible, it says in Psalm 78, 41 for 42, they limited the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember His power. The ancient Israelites often questioned whether God had any power and they lived their lives like God didn't exist. And there are people like that today. There are people who go to church all their lives and they never bother with God because for them, He doesn't really exist. Now, how many of you remember this? Have you ever seen one of these jack-in-the-boxes? Did you even play with one with your kids? I cranked it, right? You turn the crank, and you turn the crank, and you turn the crank, and suddenly Jack explodes out of the jack-in-the-box. You know what's going to happen? The kids love it, though, because they never know when it's going to happen. I tried to figure it out. There's no pattern. They know it's going to happen. They just don't know when. And that anticipation of that explosive power intrigues them. You and I need to believe in a God of explosive power, and we need to find a way to communicate God's power to the young. They will learn to love Him and learn to expect to see Him in their lives. If we act, if you act, we act, You figure this one out. Like God can't do anything, then why should the children believe in Him? We have seen cancer cured. We have seen strokes cured. We have seen miracles happen. And we need to tell them. 
We've had ambulances take people out and they've come back. We need to tell them. How can you convince them that God has power? Well, you can tell stories from the Bible, or you can tell stories of how God has worked in your life, or the lives of others. You can tell stories how God has worked in their life. Just help them see a God with explosive power, and their lives will never be the same. Years ago, a pastor shared this story in a Wesleyan minister's pastor you know, meeting. And I can't remember his name, so I can't give him credit, but I know what his face looks like, but I can't tell you, so I apologize. But it's not my story. The meeting was held in Billings, Montana, with lots of snow and bad roads. And he was the speaker, and he told the other pastors of a time that he was director of the camp for fourth and fifth graders in the Iowa district. And a young couple in this church had volunteered. They were volunteered. They hadn't just volunteered. You understand how that works? You volunteered, right? To lead the children's games. They were in charge of the games that week. And the camp was just a few miles from their home. And they, they, they'd run in for the games and they'd go home and sleep in their own beds. Because Christy, the wife, I remember her name, she was very pregnant. And on the first night of camp, it was really hot, you know, summertime, right? And when Christy woke up the next morning, she'd found that she'd bled from the night before. And that's not a good thing. So they went to the doctor in the morning. I mean, they called up, we got to get in the doctor right now. And, 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 and he was not very encouraging when he explained that the child had detached from the uterus. And during the night, and there was a slim chance the child might, could not even survive. So he had suggested that she go home and stay in bed in hopes that it would reattach. Well, her husband, if I remember right, the husband's name was Gary. I can remember the Gary and the Christine, but I can't remember the preacher who told the story. So terrible. We'll just give Gary, her husband. Dutifully came to camp to run the games because they were dependent on him. But he was really distracted. You can picture this in your mind. And he had asked that preacher if he would pray for Christy because he didn't like to pray out loud. If I told you you had to come up and pray out loud right now, half of you would look at me like I'm crazy. The only person I guarantee would show up here is Jeremiah. He's my prayer warrior, right? Well, you, some of you are too. I'm not, I'm just saying. Nothing stops him from praying. And if I'm doing wrong in the sermon, he'll also tell me too. You got, if you don't like it, tell Jeremiah. He keeps me in, in line. You need those prayer warriors. And he asked them to pray. And the preacher explained to him that if he was ever going to pray aloud, now was the time. The thing about fourth and fifth graders is, if you ask them to pray, they take it seriously. If you ask them to pray, they take it seriously and they prayed. Think about that. That's your next fill in the block. They prayed. They prayed. They prayed. For Christy all during the day. And the next day, and and Christy went back to the doctor. And he was shocked 
or they were shocked by the announcement the baby had reattached, and there were no problems now. They could go back to doing what they were doing with, you know, that, how doctors say, restrictions. They never explained those to you, right? What they'd done. So they returned to camp, not just him. She went to camp. She didn't help the games, but she sat there. And she told the kids about God's miracle. The youth that had taken part in that miracle because God had answered their prayers. Their prayers for Christy. There were more baptisms, he reported, that week in the camp than had ever been before or ever been since. The kids were lining up to get dunked in the water because God had answered a prayer. And they saw the mighty power. The last mistake that Israel made was to believe God didn't care for them. We have people like that in our nation right now. Psalm 78, verses 38 and 39. You need to read the whole psalm, right? He said, But he, being full of compassion, gave their iniquity and did not destroy them. He forgave their iniquity. Yes, many a time God had burned with anger and he did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh and a breath that passed away does not come again. You and I need to talk to our kids about a God who forgives them. A God who wants to love them. And maybe we can do that by explaining how God has forgiven us when we failed. We've all blown it once or twice. We've all done a dumb thing, tried something and it didn't work. It's life. Or we might tell them about when we decided to become Christians. Or maybe we can use it as a teachable moment. And I was hunting for a kid of a grandson under trouble. Does he look like he's in trouble for you? Okay, that's the best picture I could find of a grandson. If he think, don't think he's in trouble, just picture him in trouble. That same pastor at that winter's meeting, he shared, we were sitting around the table having dinner, right? And he shared that about a year ago, my grandson Benjamin, I think it was Benjamin, I wish I could remember his name, the, the pastor's name, came to me and asked, if I tell you what I did, will you still love me? He was more worried about my loving him than whatever he had done wrong. And, I, and he used that instrument in that incident, to tell his grandson about God. Can you picture a grandson asking that? So essentially, we can turn the tide of evil by teaching the children about God. Now we do it every week. We have Sunday school and junior church or kids church, right? And we do it in the midweek's kids program, right? And you have the opportunity to do it every week with your nephews, your nieces, your children, your grandchildren, And sometimes grandparents. But our goal is to get children to want God. Your goal is to get the people you're sharing with to want God. Whatever age group they want. And we do that differently for each person. We need to communicate to them how much we need Jesus. Now remember the old-fashioned tent revivals? This is one of those old tent revivals. You know, they never worried about air conditioning or heat. They just went to the tent, right? And the, now, the, I told you this one's old, right? There was a speaker explaining what it needs, means to abide in Christ. 
to trust in him completely. And in concluding his message, he repeated the phrase time after time, several times, no matter what our circumstances, we need to keep on saying, for this I have Christ. Sounds like an old time preacher, right? Unbeknownst to the preacher, the young lady who was playing the piano that night had received a telegram. That was the days before phones, you know, telegram, right? Right before the service that read, your mother is very ill, take the train home immediately. On the coast, especially the east coast, they took trains. They didn't have all the cars. The cars, you know, weren't as numerous. And now I remember I told this old time. And she was overwhelmed with fear. She had never traveled that far alone before. She wasn't fearful for her mom. She was fearful because she was going to have to travel on a train. And she hadn't done that. She wasn't sure whether her mother would live or die. And she had no control over what was going to happen in her life. And then she heard those words. For this I have Jesus. And it touched her heart. And she said, when I heard those words, I knew that the message was meant for me. And my heart looked up and said, for this I have Jesus. And instantly peace and strength flooded my soul. That's the message we need to speak to our children. We need to tell them of a God who has the power and who can love us and who can change our lives. And that will turn the tide in this world. Now, that is good for children. But you'd think I've been talking about kids all along. Do you realize how many times in God's holy word... You sitting here today are called the children of God. And I'm going to pick on the King James Bible, because I like that one. Over 1,500 times. 1,072 times, you're either called sons or daughters. Oh, let me get this right, figure right. 40 times, you're called little ones. 27, you're called lads. Gee, you thought all this time I'm talking about kids. Well, some of you have just been kids. Some of you have a kid's heart. Some of you need to wake up a little bit and enjoy the kid's heart. Has the world got you down? Have you gotten so mad at the television you've yelled at it? Am I the only one? Jay, you, you ever yell at the television? Yeah, he said yeah. Okay, Jay's honest. We need to share the gospel. This is not the battleground in this building. I mean no offense. You come here to get recharged. You come here to get refreshed. You come here to have some goodies and eat. And there's some wonderful goodies out there, so we're going to get right to them. We come here for this thing called fellowship and worship. But we also come for the word of God. The battle, the majority of the battle is outside these walls. And if you don't tell the difference God's made in your life to somebody, how are they going to know what he can do in their lives? We have a hymn night coming up. Then we have a Clyde Bauman night coming up. Then we got Christmas songs coming up. Why do we do these things? So you can bring somebody to church. In a non-threatening atmosphere. 
You should see the kids coming in on a Wednesday night. There's herds, little, they, they have games that I don't understand the rules for. And I'm not going to try to learn. There's over any, any over, what is it kids? What's it called? Brian? Any over. I have no idea how you play that game. Don't care. They get muddy and they play it. But they're hearing about God. But they're not the only ones called children, guys. Just because they're young and you're old does not mean you're not a child. So we need to close. Our Heavenly Father, you've told us to teach the children. We are called the children of God. You've told us to tell of what your mighty works have done. And we're called the sheep of your pasture. We have white hair, some of us. We're older and than the young ones. Help us to realize that when he's saying, talking of teaching the children, he means us too. Grant us wisdom in this teaching. In your holy name we pray. Amen.